Welcome to Be Customer-Led, where we'll explore how leading experts in customer and employee experience are navigating organizations through their own journey to be customer-led and the actions and behaviors employees and businesses exhibit to get there. And now, your host, Bill Stagos. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Be Customer Led. Thanks so much for joining us this week. I'm your host, Bill Stakos. I'm joined by a really get- interesting guest that I think many of you actually know who this is, but I'm going to not pull away the curtain just yet. He's Director of Experience Innovation at JMark. And the reason why I think a lot of you, maybe you do know his work at JMark, but our guest, Michael Bartlett, is also the founder and creator of the CCXP Exam Simulator, Michael, thanks for, so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, Bill. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. So you have a really interesting book coming out in the not-too-distant future, and we're going to talk a lot about a lot about that book because there are some really fascinating principles and ideas and parallels that you've drawn from other parts of your life and hobbies, as, as well as just passions. And you've brought them in in really creative ways. I'm just blown away by how you put this book together. So before we get into that, though, I, I just want to first ask, like, just tell our listeners about your journey. What were some of those like big factors that you know helped you to where you are today? Maybe even drove you to create this sort of the the, the, the exam simulator, even and now you are now where you are too, Mark. I was listening to a. YouTube interview that David Snowden did recently. He's well known in the complexity theory field. And he was talking about in when you're dealing with complexity, you don't necessarily know where the end goal is. So the best thing you can do is just try and figure out if you're at least going in the right direction. And so I have kind of fumbled my way to where I am now. Still not necessarily sure if this is supposed to be where I'm gonna end up or if I'm supposed to carry on and customer experience is just one you know, one step in the journey. But essentially, it started with wanting to be in the film business. I'd always wanted to direct films. I'd always been, you know, watch movies and think of different ways they could could be done better. I even just did that a few days ago. We have a tradition in England called M.R. James, A Ghost Story for Christmas. Mm. And every year, not necessarily every year, sometimes they skip a year here or there, but normally every year, the BBC does an adaptation of one of M.R. James' ghost stories and they show it on Christmas Eve. And I watched it with my wife, and I said, ah, you know, they came so close, but they just totally dropped the ball on the ending. So I recut it for them, and I sent it. I put it on YouTube. The BBC copyright striked it, and then I wrote to them and said, would you at least allow it? Because I'm not giving away the full episode. I'm just giving away just the ending. And all I'm trying to do is use it for educational purpose to show how Mm. actually showing less is going to be more impactful than showing more. I don't want to spoil the ending for anybody, but it's called the mezzanine. The mezzanine, sorry. And the ending was just there's there's some kind of fiend, and they just showed too much of it. And it's so much easier mm. if you don't do that. So I've had this kind of like in, really good instincts for editing and for film directing, and so I wanted to go in that direction. But then after being in, I remember when I was at the Cannes Film Festival, I found when they took me into the back of the sales company. I found the marketing stuff more interesting than the filmmaking. And I loved how they had all these different posters and they would yeah. they would get like eight or nine done by a big company called Stockholm Designer of Los Angeles. 
And then once once they had those, they would go through iterations to work on the marketing. And so that sort of then set me in a slightly different direction. And yeah, just slowly through different you know pieces of luck and through so, sort of grit and determination, I ended up in a situation where I was fortunate enough to get offered a user experience role. It wasn't a UX role. I mean, there was no like gestural principles or UI design or anything like that. It was a CX role, really. They just gave it the wrong name. And that's when I found the CXPA. So this is in 2016. And I took the CCXP exam and I wasn't happy with the prep materials that I had. Lynn Hunsaker actually did a really good course, but there was a series of practice questions that really irritated me. And I said, what, someone needs to build something like that, but do it properly. And I'd also had a PMP at the time and I'd used the PMP exam simulator by Cornelius Fincher. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll just adapt what I've seen from the PMP world and I'll just put it into the CX world. And that's how I built that. Now, I had to leave my job to do it. So I had to take a <laughs> risk and I took four months of unemployment out of the school district to, to get it built. But it ended up being a good decision because I built the simulator and then I landed straight at JMark afterwards. So it all worked out pretty nicely. That's awesome. I lo- that's a great story. I'm, I'm not, I didn't realize that you used the PMP simulator to, to create the CCXP simulator. But it's really an interesting just the parallel between you recutting that film before for BBC and thinking about you're almost recutting the PMP simulator in some way, shape or form, right? Like just that parallel thinking skill set is really important in the work that we do every day. So no doubt you're successful at GMark in part due to that. You've got this book coming out. It's called The Dark Side of CX. So I'm curious, like, why did you write the book? Like what motivated you to do it? And tell tell listeners a little bit about what, what it's about. I wanted to write it for a while. So I actually wanted to write a different book, more on human psychology, but that would be like a big old, like, 300 page, you know, text and just trying to find the time to do that. I've still got all of my, on the other side of this room, I have like eight whiteboards and they're stacked with notes. I, I'm a visual thinker, so yes, I realize it's probably dangerous to put things on a whiteboard, but I do it anyway, and I have them stacked, and I want to put them all around a room one day and start tying it all together and then write that book. I ended up realizing I was just not going to get that done anytime soon, and I really wanted to write one um, last year, and I had all the um, – it was going to look like an in-between book, if you will, and I had all of the illustrations done at the end of 2019, and the plan was to write it in 2020. And of course, 2020 ended up throwing everybody a, a curveball. So I didn't do it then. And then I was getting towards the end of this year. And then I got to October and I was like, oh, man, it's a real shame. And Sharon Boyd, who is a CX practitioner yeah, in England, yeah. mentioned how she was getting ready to do another one. And I was like, you only just did a book and you've got another one. And I just messaged her and said, how do you do this? Like, where do you get the energy from? And that little conversation gave me the energy to start writing the book. Basically, she said, I'll be your accountant buddy and I will just check in on you every few days and you do the same to me. And it's amazing how that one little behavioral nudge made all the difference. And within a month, the book was written. And the point of the book was in the CX world, I see a lot of books all about the customer. So there's like journey mapping and then there's customer culture, all these Mm -hmm. kind of customer books. But I'm like, well, we're in customer experience and like, shouldn't the way that experiences happen, like the science behind them, shouldn't that be part of the conversation as well? I don't really see anyone talking about it. The closest I've seen is like Colin Shaw goes into that world a little bit and he talks a bit about behavioral science too. But I've never seen a book just on that. 
So I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll write a book about that. But then what was interesting is I had picked up this idea of pre-owns from the, yeah. from the world of chess, which is a, it's a Russian term for a pattern that appears in a chess position, but it also has an associated maneuver. So if you see it, then you have to exploit it to make the situation better. Mm-hmm. And I thought well, I might be able to combine those two ideas and I can basically lay out the psychological side of CX. And then I can actually show patterns where things go wrong. And, and not only can I just show them, but I can give you an actual explanation for why this infuriates people, why this drives people away. And it does take, it takes a different path because rather than being very fluffy and happy and like most cx books it takes the dark side approach (laughs) so i want to get into the pre-owned in a second but just really quickly if we just stay on the book like what challenges like i'm always curious because i've i mean i've had aspirations of writing a book but i'm like you're crazy like that's i've i've got enough going on in my life right now that i just don't have time right but and plus it seems like really hard and like i'm just like not gonna go there yet but like, what challenges did you experience writing this one? I mean, you wrote it in a month, so maybe not that many. And it sounds like you had Sharon kind of helping you through the process. Or maybe a better question, what learning or learnings did you get learned about yourself, maybe, or just even CX as a discipline as you were writing this book? Well, I was forced to do a lot of research for the book. I already knew the general ideas because I'd seen them elsewhere, and I was just combining ideas from different fields. But then when you have to structure them and then put them into coherent arguments, that's where I think I learned a lot of things that I'd not seen before. There was one book that I'd read called Imagine Reading This Book, and the cover of the book is a hand turning the book, and it's all about the power of imagination and visualization. And the author had found a really interesting idea called the equity scale, and he explained how fairness works. And I'd never seen anything like that before. Mm. And I realized when I was writing the book, I might actually be able to incorporate that when I talk about when, – because the idea is when you, when you look at a business – relationship with a customer there's always a balance to it in fact there's balance Mm -hmm. in everything we do and the concept was that the idea of fairness seems to be tied to our innate sense of physical balance Mm. and so when when a relationship becomes unbalanced it becomes frustrating but you also as a customer you have this urge to write the balance in the same way that if somebody has a knee injury that will throw off their hip a little bit that will throw it literally throws off the the whole way that the, the human body stands your eyes always want to be balanced. So they will make the rest of your body compensate for that. And that's why you can end up with long-term injuries. Yeah. So that was really novel to me. And I found that, and then I was able to incorporate that. And as I just kept reading different books as part of my research, I realized there were other little ideas that I'd not considered really. And I needed to bring those in and, and share those with the audience. So, so that was good. And then the other thing is whenever you undertake anything like this, you will always learn something about the mechanics of it. So when I wrote my first book, I didn't know anything about publishing on Amazon, but I had to learn it. Mm. And things have evolved a little bit since I wrote my first book in 2017. So this time around, now I'm looking at how do I structure the Word document so that I can have sections. And Because the first document, one of the criticisms of my first book, apart from the fact that everyone said it was too small, it was 60-something pages, was there were a lot of negative reviews about the just the visual look of it. 
everyone said, well, this looks, it literally looks like a Word document that was just pasted into, which it was. So I thought, okay, this time I'll, I'll, I'll put a bit more effort into trying to make it a little bit more beautiful, look a little bit more standardized. So mm. there's a lot of effort that goes into that. So I was watching a lot of YouTube videos on how to structure books and format books. And I learned a lot of stuff about Microsoft Word that I didn't even know existed. So that was really helpful as well. And that's why doing these projects is always a good experience because you learn so much from them. I can, I'm still kind of going back to like, I don't understand how you did all this. Well, I guess you you wrote the book in a month, but if you think about the research process, that discovery, putting ideas together, how long did that take you end to end? Well, that's been an ongoing thing, but I would say that for this book, it started probably in 2019. I'd say it started at the beginning of 2019. Wow. I know because some of the books that I have that I reference, like this one here, uh, this book, let me pull it out of my shelf so I can show everybody. So this book, I think I read it in March 2019. I think I took a week off work so I could read it along with some other books. And then that course, that information just gets archived away. But you remember certain elements yeah. of it. Like in this book, off the top of my head, I remember one of the things that I learned from it was the way that we process images. And I'm going to see if I could find it and show you. Yeah. And we process the left-hand side of an image much more better than we do the right-hand side. So they show two faces with everything mm. flipped, and they say, which one do you prefer? Now, obviously, you're seeing this on a flipped webcam, but just little yeah. things like that. And I make, a, I make the note of it, and I archive it away, and then I move on to the next book. 2019 is also when I got really into behavioral science. So I started reading a lot of really interesting behavioral science books. And I, I want to show these to you because I think this is all really relevant to your question. But so, for example, one really interesting book, I've got it here, is Think Tank. So this book is a collection of articles. Uh, let me show if we can show that one there. And yep. uh, a collection of articles on human experience. So just the way that we perceive things, the way we remember mm. things. And it says here, 40 neuroscientists explore the biological roots of human experience. So there was a really good learning from this book, which was um, what's the key to happiness in life? And so they look at the perception system and how we don't have an absolute idea of like black and white. Like you yeah. go into a dark room and everything will adjust. So they For say sure. you grade, we grade on a scale. And so they said, ironically, the secret to happiness might actually be unhappiness, because at least then you've got something to juxtapose it against to actually right. know when you're happy. Whereas if you're someone that leads like the best life ever and nothing ever goes wrong, from your perspective to other people, they might think that's great. From your perspective, you yeah. might be miserable. <laughs> so that's just <laughs> loads of really cool things that I found. And it was mainly just a lot of reading through 2019 and 2020 that really got me to the point where I was like, okay, I think I got enough of this now. Now I need to give this out to the world in a condensed format so everybody else can enjoy it. Really interesting. So, uh, by the way, uh, Think Back, Think Tech was the second book. The first book you referenced, just for folks who are not going to watch the YouTube of this, was Neurodesign. And so, folks, check it out if, if you haven't read it already. Let's take it back to the pre-owned because I just think that, you know, what an interesting parallel to what we go through as consumers uh, or buyers on, on a regular basis. One of the companies, like Singapore Airlines, I, I've noticed, does a great job of understanding the top 10 things that will go wrong in the customer's experience according to their research and insights and feedback from customers, plus the 10 things that you should be doing you know, for a customer step by step, right? So, and you go to your book, like this happens, like think about X, right? It's not just, you're not just putting in the book, like here's what this pre-ohm is and here's what it means. Like you're actually giving guidance to, to, to the reader as well about here's what you can potentially do about it, which I really love. It just got, got the juices flowing. 
Why do you think that companies maybe have a hard time around outside of understanding what the issue is or maybe what that pre-ohm is for their organization? You know, let's use this kind of the chess reference. Why do you think that they don't think of what the next move is or the next right move is for the customer in that context? So I think it, it boils down to it's just a lot of noise. And I don't mean that disrespectfully to the customer. I just mean there's a lot of noise and how do you pull out something from that noise? So in 20, what year was it? 2016, 2017, I read a really interesting book. It's actually my favorite business book. It's called Predictable Success. And what I really liked about the book is at the beginning, he gives three scenarios. The author gives three scenarios of these are people that came to me for help. And he sits down with them and, and he says, how can I help you? And I say, oh, my God, Les. Well, this is going on, and then this happened, and you read it all, and it's just like this long chain of thought of, of noise. Like, I need something to grab onto so I can understand this and put it into a framework or put it into a form and fix it. And 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 both they all just seem very noisy. Then he lays out his his predictable success framework, and then once you've learned it, at the very end, he says, "Now let's go back to those three and see if they make a little bit more sense. And immediately you're like, oh, yeah, I can immediately see what's going on here. And their business is stuck in this phase. Predictable success is really interesting because it talks about the life cycle of a business. Mm. So basically, uh, you start off with normally a visionary who's you know the big ideas person and an operator who is the person that likes to just get stuff done. And of course, the, the classic example of that pairing comes from from Apple's founders and then what happens is the business starts to grow and everything goes really well. And then they start to grow beyond their means. And he said, that's where you need to bring the third personality typing, which is the called the processor. You need to be what you need to be careful of those characters because they can become bureaucrats if they go too far, but they bring stability. They bring process to the situation and that stabilizes the organization out. It takes it from what is known as whitewater and it stabilizes a predictable success. But the problem is if you then get too many processes in the organization, you then round the curve and you end up in something called treadmill where there's just mm. red tape everywhere. And so once he laid that framework out, I was like, okay, now it, just business consulting in general seems so much easier. His book isn't based on science, though. He did say, look, I'll be upfront with you in the beginning of this book. It's not based on science. It's based on my observations as a consultant for decades. But what's really interesting is I see his ideas reflected in other places. I see his mm -hmm. ideas reflected in what's it called? The EOS sphere, where they talk yeah. about the different roles in EOS. And also in the culture world, we have the competing values framework. And I noticed that his three personality types slot very nicely into three of the four grids in uh, or sectors of the grid in the competing values framework. So I think that stuff makes really helps, makes a lot of difference. So I, I did the same thing for chess. I looked at chess and I thought, well, the preams are really useful. And if I've got that book with me now, I have a particular book where I first learned about preams. It's somewhere here. It's called, it's by an author called Andy Saltis. And I want to see if I've got it. because I'd love to be able to show it to your listeners. I just don't know if I've got it handy right now it's somewhere in this shelf buried somewhere but he lists he lists i have layers of books on my shelf that's the only way i, I can see it. it yeah but basically he he lists out the 25 most common pre-ohms that you should know and that i read this book in 2014 and that chapter mm -hmm. essentially informed the idea of the book he's like okay look there's, pr there's probably an unlimited number of these pre-ohms in the cx world but what are the most common ones 
Mm. And so I went and I did some research and I, I went out there and looked at all the different articles, looked people, customer complaints, all that kind of stuff. And I noticed they tend to fall into a collection of, I think it was like maybe 17 or 18. There's other little ones mm-hmm. here and there, but mm-hmm. these are the main ones. And I thought, well, you know what? there's got to be underlying issues that cause these kind of things to happen. And so using something called the iceberg model from a systems thinking toolkit yeah. to explain to the to the reader in the book, I basically say, look, here's how you can go about diagnosing them. But from my experience, these are the reasons why these things tend to happen. And so I want to give that to you because now if you're in a CX role or if you're in any part of the business and you see these things happen over and over again, now you've got something that you can go to that catalogs it. It's almost like when you when you name your enemy. Okay, I've named you. Now I know what you are. I'm not just an ill person now. I know the specific disease. Yeah. Now I can look it up and go after the specific treatment plan, that kind of thing. Very cool. Are there preums in your in the research that you did, Michael? Are there preums that kept on maybe kind of just really surface to the top always? Like what are like the one or two preums you think that industry is maybe most guilty of? So the one I see the most is called confusion. And the way to deal with that is to have a good understanding of both information architecture and to understand choice architecture. I think those two fields are very important. But essentially, like my wife runs into it so many times. She was trying to do an online order from Hy-Vee the other day, and things just kept disappearing from a car. Then she was on Minards and couldn't select her own local store. It kept changing it after she'd selected it and just confusing the users. And you confuse them yeah. enough and they'll drop out and go to another competitor. Yeah. And maybe it's because most of our interactions are, or not most, but let's say a large chunk of our interactions and an increasingly large chunk of our interactions are digital now. Maybe that's yeah. why confusion keeps surfacing to the top so much. But even with like non-digital interactions, I see that thing popping up all the time. I did a pickup recently i think i mentioned this in the book a pickup from my local grocery store and they have these instructions when you get there so either you phone this number up or you text this number and then we'll be right out and i found out their process is broken and the text messages don't seem to do anything so you have to eventually phone them up and i've learned this through eight or nine times doing this uh, but someone who's brand new who's never done this before might text they're going to sit there for a while and then they're going to be completely confused it also has another pattern which i call the overly long wait but that yeah. really shouldn't overly wait normally when they happen consistently but yeah it's just i don't know i see this stuff and I, I still can't believe that this is happening in this day and age so that's kind of why i wrote the book i was like someone's going to do something about this and maybe maybe if we just start cataloging these things and showing how easy they are to fix maybe businesses will start taking note of it Naming the villain. I love that. I do. I do. When I was reading the book and and I got to confusion in particular, Michael, my head went directly to pandemic, everybody trying to figure out what is the right online solution for our company, digital, 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 and just created stuff without really the customer in mind or even going out to them to test because you couldn't in in many cases, which created an enormous amount of technical debt out there in the marketplace. And that's where my head went first. And just like, you know, those those organizations that were digital first or just more savvy or had the resources clearly came through more unscathed than others through through the pandemic. But I, I, I wonder if that confusion and that heightened level of confusion from a digital perspective is a result of the pandemic and this rush to create a digital solution, damage the customer on some level. So, yeah, rushing, um, definitely. Yeah, for sure. 
So I, I want to talk, there's one concept that you brought up in there, which I personally have not heard before. And I just found it fascinating. I was like, I'm going to steal this from Michael and use it myself, if that's okay. I'm happy to, 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 to attribute it to you. Is this concept of social friction versus goal friction. The way you described it, there was like this, this unbelievable, beautiful simplicity to it. But I'd love for you to describe it for our listeners and the distinctions and um and maybe in the context of customer or employee experience. When I started the psychology section of the book, I listed out what makes something a bad experience. And I essentially had to fundamentally go down to what are our core human needs, because whenever one of those gets infringed upon, that normally is a bad sign and that normally will, will cause the bad experience. And there's a few other things that, that go in there as well that are in the book, like, for example, the the idea of allostasis from body budgeting, which Lisa Feldman Barrett introduced. So that's credit to her. She's the one who who kind of like made that yeah. some, a concept that's easy to understand for business people. Layering it up, I, I wanted this to be something that's actionable. I don't want consultants to have to walk around with all of these needs in their head and then say, well, how, how does exploration affect the customer experience or how does status? I need yeah. to make it even simpler than that. And so to make it actionable, I was able to basically take the concept of a bad customer experience and compose it into two distinct parts, one of which is goal friction and one of which is social friction. Now, most people probably know goal friction. In fact, it's Roger Dooley publicized it with his book, Friction. So that's a pretty well-known concept. In fact, if you say friction to anybody in CX, that's what they often think of. But it's only one half of the of the puzzle. The other half is social friction. So that could be that everything that you do in your transaction is done exactly to the speed that you expect it. So there's no problems with efficiency. Nothing's getting in your way. But someone talks down to you, almost makes, makes a, ni- a nasty little remark or something like that, and that hurts you. And there's biological reasons why it hurts you, which is maybe a separate discussion. But ultimately, they're attacking your status when they do that to you. When you have any kind of interaction with anybody, there's kind of three ways that you interact with them. You interact with them either as they're like a a mentor or a dominance to you. They're an equal to you or they're the opposite. They're like you're mentoring them, you're dominant to them. Hmm. So there's certain – and this goes with software as well. So – there could be a piece of software you're using where you are terrified and you don't know what to do. Like maybe TurboTax is a really good example. So the tone that you want TurboTax to take with you is more of a, a mentor. It's going to guide you through it, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But like I was driving at one of these new cars the other day. I had to take my dog up to the vet. Funnily enough, it the same the same vet I mentioned in the in the book as well. And this car decided that it knew more about my driving than I did. And I think it was just bad AI. And there were times where I drove across the road where it would take control of the steering wheel. It would jerk the car. And it stressed me out considerably. It sends an adrenaline shot up you when it happens the first few times. And and then I got this really patronizing message on the dashboard about stay in your lane, exclamation mark. And it really annoyed me. And it's because I don't need my car to be dominant. I'm driving the car. You're a tool. You do what I need you to do. And and so that kind of that made a status attack on me when it did it, even though it's only a piece of technology. It wasn't just goal friction, but it was social friction as well. So that's why those two concepts are very important. And I explain them in the book in detail. But basically, you need to know when you're delivering customer experiences, how the customers expect to be spoken mm. to and what the nature of the relationship is. Are they, are they paying you to do something and you just do it? You're like almost like a servant 
or are they paying for you to be like a, a mentor and a dominant force and they're scared and they're uncertain and they need your help? So that's where those two concepts come into play. Like I said, beautifully simple, well put. And um, anyway, obviously, part of the reason why I wanted you on the show is I really want to encourage readers to buy your book when it's out. You had another one in there, uh, a principle that I really love, the handicap principle. So you described it as sort of an evolutionary idea of, of, of costly signaling. So I think you your example was sort of like a bank, two banks on each side of the street. One bank is, invests heavily in sort of what it looks like from the outside, probably like big columns, the whole thing, what you might expect from a traditional bank. The other was like, you know, a former pizza shop or so I think the example that you use or something like mm-hmm. that. So, it, which I thought was really, really funny. But then I was like thinking like, is this where marketing steps in and influences the experience or the perceived experience of, of you as a consumer? And do you have any other examples of where you might even see? So second question and follow-up is like, where do you see signaling, even maybe in a digital from a digital perspective today, uh, most prevalent? So a good example, I can't remember who I'm borrowing this from. I heard someone say, it might have even been in another one of the books I read, but a good example is let's say that something goes wrong in your house, like something goes wrong with the, the lighting in your garage or something, or a fuse goes out, and it's just something you don't know how to fix, and you call an electrician around. And the electrician comes in, and he goes in, and he does a few little things, and then five minutes later, he goes, easy, no problem whatsoever, $200. And you're like, oh, but if he's there for an hour tinkering around and then he comes out and he says $200, you feel that he's because he's put so much effort in that it must be worth more money. And so the signal, I'm obviously not advising anybody to, to do that and like just con a customer, but I am yeah. trying to explain essentially where that comes from, which is if, if somebody puts a lot of effort into something – which is, of course, at their own expense, then they're normally signaling that they've that they're letting that they've put that effort in, it's cost them something. So therefore, mm. if you're reimbursing them, then you're obviously gonna pay them more than if they didn't mm. put very much effort in. It's a shame because it I would expect if someone could come in and fix something in five minutes, you, people would be over the moon. But not everyone recognizes all of the years of training and all of the experiences that person's had to make them good enough to fix something in a few minutes. And you can use that in the digital perspective as well. So here's a good example. I go to a website and I want to, I want to find like maybe some website that has, we've got some AI engine and we, we can find deals that nobody else can find. And they say, type in all the things that you want and we'll bring it back to you. And you say, go and it spins. And then the results come back immediately. Okay. But what if it spanned for about five or six seconds and then the results came mm. back? You think, wow, I must have been really chucking through some big data there and doing some real yeah. analysis. Yeah. These people are the real deal. So it's just a psychological thing where when when someone or something expends a lot of effort, you associate that typically with quality. Interesting. Now I'm just kind of thinking about how much – I mean, I, I put a lot of effort into this show. I'm hoping that that sticks out to people yeah. and people are thinking it's a quality mm-hmm. show now. Hey, I've got two uh, final questions for you, Michael. This has been really interesting. I'm so, like, well, one, before we get to those questions, when's the book coming out? Let's talk about that really quickly. Like, when can people start to see it on, on Amazon or on, on digital shelves or even in a real shelf, perhaps? So the book is scheduled for release in the last week of February. I'll do an announcement on LinkedIn the week that it comes out, and I'll make sure that everybody is aware of it. And I'm going to try and get this one out on paperback and Kindle. I didn't put my last one on Kindle, but I'm going to try and get this one on Kindle for people as well. Cool. Well, I will look forward to it as well. So my final two questions, they're somewhat related in a sense, but I'm always curious about like where 
One, who do you look up to? And maybe that's in the CX space or whatever, but like, who do you look up to? And then number two is where do you go for inspiration? So people I look up to right now, people who I could spend just hours watching their content because I love them so much is there's, there's a few people. Uh, I love Rory Sutherland. Rory Sutherland is an expert in behavioral science. And if you just type his name into YouTube and you start watching one of his videos, he'll blow your mind. I still remember fondly when he explained that there's a particular color. I can't remember which one it was. It might be violet. It's, it's, it looks like purple. And he said that color does not exist. And so when you see it, it's because your brain is creating that color because of, of a dysfunction in the way that your eyes work. And I still remember being blown off. No, that can't be true. And I went and I researched it. And I was like, well, apparently it's true. And Rory is full of these really cool little insights about the human mind he's just a really really interesting guy if like if you're if no one's ever heard of him and you imagine a really eloquent like english professor that speaks in that quintessential posh english voice and is full of all of these quotes and uh, anecdotes that span all of these different disciplines and yes rory sutherland has all of that information he's a fascinating guy i've got onto looking at dave snowden's work recently he's a guy i mentioned yep. earlier on does yep. a lot of work in complexity theory and i found some of his ideas really really fascinating in terms of the new world that we're in now where things are changing at an exponential rate and we're trying to keep up to date so i think he's really interesting yeah, there's another guy. I, I, I spoke to him briefly, and I want to, I actually want to interview him. I don't have a podcast, but I'd like to do a YouTube video with him. If your listeners go and go to Amazon Prime and type in the word Jacob, J-A-C-O-B, there's a documentary about this guy, and he is a – I believe he's a published author. He's a, a won some serious prizes as well for his, his work. He's a trained lawyer. He's a trained ER nurse and can treat people in the ER. And there's a bunch of other things he does as well. He's like he he's like the perfect fusion of a generalist and a specialist. <laughs> he's a specialist to all these different things. And the documentary is really interesting because you get to like see his perspectives on life and all of the different things. And I always I'm impressed by people that can draw from multiple different angles and pull those ideas together because I'll often see things the rest of us won't. And he has a really interesting theory about and it doesn't just apply to books like you and I would write like fiction books as well. He talks about the importance of the first line, the first sentence in a book. And so I did some research into what he said, and I found a really good example. So imagine that you'll read, you've picked up a book, and whether you want to buy it or not, and you read the first line of the book, and the first line says, what would you pack if you had two hours to leave your husband? And I thought that was brilliant, because it immediately kind of tells you a lot about what the book's going to be about, but it poses such an interesting question. There's a, there's a ticking clock in there, which... From my film directing world, I always remember the midpoint of a film. It's a good idea to start a ticking clock because it pushes the protagonist forwards as well. So some of his ideas are just that they really resonated with me. So I would recommend finding that documentary and watching it, Jacob. And he's a very inspirational guy. And then where do I go for inspiration? I mean, YouTube YouTube mainly. There's lots of really interesting people out there on YouTube. Found a guy named Dave Sinclair recently who claims to have been able to find ways to reverse biological aging. They've discovered a new compound, AKG, I think it was called, and that changed the biological age in mice. So there's just some really fascinating things out there and fascinating people out there. And if people are doing their best to try and 
sense for them and I want to watch them even more because they've probably got something very interesting to say. may not be true, but I want to see both sides of a discussion. So I find I might have to sometimes go to Rumble, but predominantly YouTube I find really good stuff. Yeah, yeah there's some great stuff from uh, Kurtzweil. I don't know if you're familiar with Ray Kurtzweil in terms of like the longevity scene. but Oh, wow. No, I've not heard of him after looking yeah, up. Yeah, so Ray Kurtzweil is, is a futurist and like I think he is the most – his predictions out of anybody else, he's got the most ap- accurate predictions out of any futurist ever in the history of futurists. Wow. Like stuff that he was talking about 40 years ago or 30 years ago is literally like within five years around now coming to fruition. Like, And, and, and in terms of like the longevity scene, which he's a really big, he, he talks a lot about longevity. Yeah, he's literally said like probably folks like you're my age, depending on our wealth level, we may have the opportunity to live forever. Our children, without a doubt, will have an opportunity to live forever. Oh yes, no yeah. matter no matter like no matter wealth level, right? So, really fascinating stuff. But check them out if if you've never heard. Thank of you. That's a great recommendation. Thank yeah. you, Michael. It's it's great to have you on the show. I'm so happy we had an opportunity to meet. And thank you for writing this book. It's really interesting, and I'm excited to to, uh, to check it out even deeper when it comes out in that about a month or so. Awesome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Were there any particular things in it that you you liked the best? For me, I think it was the concept of pre-ohms for sure, because I've started now thinking about not only I'm starting to recognize them in my own daily routines and not just from an experiential perspective, but there are, if you actually look hard, there are pre-ohms everywhere. Oh, yes. And, you know, so like, and, and how do I, as a human being, how do I react to those? And I've just like, do, do I have biases and, you know, and unconscious biases and I'm reacting to different pre-ohms that exist out there in the world? And how do I manage that and be more just intentional about my actions? So that's one. Mm-hmm. And number two is the social and goal friction, which I really just love that concept. Like I said, I will uh, attribute it to you for sure, but I'm going to be using it with our own clients. Awesome. I have a funny story for you just to close as well. On yeah. um, So I do a lot of work with dogs and dog rescue. We brought this this one dog in. She, my wife, so I was actually at, was I, I was at the Medallia Conference in July. I can't remember which year it was, 20, 2018 or 2019. I was, I think it was 2018. I was at the Medallia Conference in San Diego. And I get a text message from my wife and she says, um, look, I know we talked, we said no more dogs but this dog appeared on my Pinterest and I don't even look for dogs on Pinterest. She's in a kill shelter and I got to get her out. She's in Georgia. So I talked to some of my contacts and we got her out here and we fostered her for a little while. Problem was she wasn't aggressive in the sense that if she saw a dog across the road, she'd want to go get him. But if a dog came towards her, she would be willing to go to the death to defend herself. She was scared of other dogs and her strategy was I'll just, just kill him. So we had this very dangerous dog in our house. And I had read, I don't know if I've got this one on my shelf now, but called, yeah, here it is. Let me pull this down for you because I, I think this is another great book. And this is where some of my theories come from. This is where I learned about the seeking system. So this is a book called Alive at Work by Daniel Cable. And I had learned that there is a tension between exploration and wanting to be safe. And we see it through archaeological records as well. So tribes will, mm-hmm. in bleak seasons, will hunker down and they'll just live off of their resources. But in plentiful seasons, they can expend that extra energy to go out and search new areas to find new things because you have to. If you just keep living off the resources you've got without trying to find new ones, you perish in the that's long right. run. You, that's not how to play the long game. You have to explore. This is also, by the way, a, a technique that people should think about in innovation. So you should have the majority of your projects in the business should be 
at least as close to sure things as possible, but you should always have some that are just crazy because probably most of them will fail, but one of them might be that one ant that goes out and finds a food source that no one's thought about. Moonshot. So I yeah. thought about this tension and I said, so what I did is I brought, I had another guy work with me and we brought this dog. Her name was Diva, funnily enough. We brought Diva out and as soon as she saw my dog, she was, you know, teeth and everything. So we kept them at a safe distance and we walked them. And Mac, my, my dog Mac, who's here with me right now, she walked a little in front. And after a while, Diva's sense of safety started to take over and then her sense of exploration started kicking in. She wanted to go a little bit closer to Mac, but at her own pace, though, she got a little bit closer, a little bit closer. Finally, we have the two of them walking side by side and Diva actually walks up to my dog Mac and licks her face. Now, it's still not a situation where you want to have them together unsupervised, but that was one of the things that we did over time and it, it helped me realize that it's called the seeking system, but all of these components they're real. They're not just theory because I actually thought, well, I'll try and apply the theory in real world and see if it happens. And it absolutely did. So I know that we can apply this framework to customers. We can apply it to pe people in general. It's, it's really fascinating. Very cool. Hey, this, this conversation has been really thought provoking. I mean, I'm so glad we had an opportunity to connect and I can't wait to follow the work that you're doing. And, and I really would recommend all listeners, if they're not familiar with you, to check out the stuff that you're putting out there and certainly to buy the book. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great having you here and what a Thank great you, conversation. Awesome. Yeah, I really all enjoyed right, it. And uh, yeah, we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Great show for you this week. Thanks for, so much for the gift of your time, Michael. We're out. Talk to you soon, Thanks everyone. for listening to Be Customer Led with Bill Stakos. We are grateful to our audience for the gift of their time. Be sure to visit us at BeCustomerLed.com for more episodes. Leave us feedback on how we're doing or tell us what you want to hear more about. Until next time, we're out. We're out.